It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Well, hello and welcome everybody to Bits and Pieces podcast for June 2023. I'm joined with my colleague James and let's cast an eye back over what happened in June. You know, there'd been three papers which Nicola Sturgeon had presented. We podcasted the press conference launches. Hamza Youssef came out with a fourth. Didn't know that at all. It was a bit unexpected. And it's about getting a constitution. He did a press conference, quite short. There's a podcast version on our website as well. So this is a part of his speech, setting out why we would have one and how we would do it. The UK does not have a codified constitution, as we know. Instead, its constitutional arrangements are based on the principle that the Westminster Parliament is sovereign. This makes it a global outlier amongst modern democracies. For example, all uh, member states of the European Union have written constitutions. Not having one and relying on Westminster supremacy has real consequences. We've spent the last decade looking on as the UK government undermines constitutional principle after constitutional principle, with very little that anyone can do about challenging them or holding them to account. That would not be possible in a country with a codified written constitution that sets what the rules are, but then importantly and crucially sets out what people can do to ensure that governments and politicians adhere to them. Westminster has already been able to undermine the devolution settlement override decisions made by an elected Scottish Parliament. In future, Westminster sovereignty, of course, could even allow the UK Parliament to repeal devolution through nothing other than a simple majority vote. That's not an abstract concept. It's worth remembering that the UK government is already seriously considering the repeal of the Human Rights Act, one of the most significant achievements of any UK Parliament in the last 30 years. So all of this raises the question, why should Scotland settle for the current Westminster system rather than making different choices ourselves? With independence, Scotland could embrace the principle outlined in the claim of right for Scotland, that sovereignty lies with the people. And we could adopt a written constitution that sets out to protect key rights, key values. Governments, of course, come and go. But what a constitution built by the people can do is set out and embody a set of longer term, more fundamental values about what a country is for, how it should work. A common understanding of a nation's priorities, a standard below which no government should ever fall, and a mechanism for ensuring that these aren't just lofty words, but are meaningful rights that put power in the hands of the people who live here. Today's paper also sets out how we would create a constitution. It makes clear that after a vote for independence, the devolved Scottish Parliament would legislate on an interim constitution. After a wide process of consultation and of engagement, this interim constitution would come into force at the time of independence. Following independence, we would then develop a permanent constitution through a legally mandated constitutional convention. This process would be driven by the people. Once a draft constitution has been drawn up, it will then be considered 
by the Scottish Parliament. But it will only come into force if the people of Scotland vote for it in a referendum. In the context of the Westminster system, these proposals do sound radical. We are, after all, planning to involve the entire country in discussions about fundamental constitutional change. But when you look beyond Westminster, you can see that our proposals are in line with steps that have been taken by nations right across the world. So the fact you didn't know it was on the go at all reinforces how low-key it was as a launch. Oh yeah, completely under the radar. We said before that having a constitution is really one of those key steps that you have to have, like every country that has gained independence. The step they had either immediately after or immediately before gaining their independence was making a constitution. Yeah, absolutely. And the experience of the last few years of Westminster just completely and utterly abusing the power that they've got with no checks and balances, I think it's brought home the reality that with a majority at Westminster, they could tomorrow, if they wanted to, vote to get rid of devolution. They, they could do anything they like, and there's nothing we could do about it. Yeah, that's why you have a constitution. <laughs> He's laid it out. He's not wrong. <laughs> Do you think it's a good idea that we should have one, though? It just seems like a no-brainer to me, but from the perspective of somebody young, does this seem relevant? Yeah, it seems to me to be an important step. There's going to be some interesting quandaries around getting the entire country involved in it. But ideally, it is just simple tenets that if you read it, you would immediately come away and go, I understand this, I am either for it or against it. Most modern constitutions are sort of small pamphlet size. And I think the process of deciding and discussing and agreeing what kind of country you want to be is probably the best way of bringing people into that conversation who don't want to be part of a conversation about should we be independent or not. The constitution can't come in until we are, but it's not getting hung up on the process. It's like deciding whether you should move house. You don't spend all your effort worrying about how you're going to book the removal van. It's about what kind of house do you want? Where do you want it to be? What do you want to do in it? And it's it's moving the conversation onto that. And everybody's got an opinion on what kind of country they want to live in, regardless of what they think about independence. Sure. Do you remember the Supreme Court case? Yes. Which more or less decided that Scotland didn't have the right to hold a referendum without the UK's permission, didn't have the right to go to the United Nations because it's not a colony. And the Supreme Court ruling seemed, it just seemed to close off all the avenues that we thought we had opened to us. Neil Hanvey from the Alba Party has sought an opinion from Professor Robert McCorkadale. He's been an advocate before the International Court of Justice. He's an expert member of UN working groups and he's an expert in international law. Alba held a press conference somewhere in Westminster, one of the committee rooms. Unfortunately, the, the audio was awful. I've tried to improve it as best I can. Professor McCorkadale's opinion confirms that the people of Scotland are distinct within the UK and have a right to self-determination, and that the right to self-determination applies to the people of Scotland. He goes on to say, as the people of Scotland are a people for the purposes of the right to self-determination, they can exercise it. The choice of the means to exercise is for the people to decide, not for the state. Furthermore, Professor McCorkadale explains that the UK as a signatory to multi multilateral international human rights uh, treaties has expressly accepted that the right to self-determination is a human right and not just an international legal principle. 
which is binding under international law on all seas. The audio is uh, a bit difficult there, but uh, that's the best we can do with it. But I've read the opinion that's been published, and I was left thinking, so what? He confirmed that we do have the right to self-determination. He has found two errors in law in the way that the Supreme Court wrote their judgment, but that was the Supreme Court. That's as high as it gets. Scotland can't mount a challenge to the United Nations because we're not a state. His suggestion is that we could either get some other state to act for us or the one thing that we've we've said all along and we're not going to do, which is a, a unilateral declaration of independence, then throw ourselves on the mercy of the rest of the world. So I don't think this opinion is necessarily the magic one that Neil suggested it was there. Yeah, it strikes me as the classic man has said thing and what's there for? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a sort of so what. But there is a second opinion which has been sought from specialists in domestic law. Now, it might be that put the two together and you've got something that you can do something with, something practical, but we haven't heard the second one yet. Throwing it open to the blue sky experimental pre-thinking kind of thing. What does the whole having another state do it for you thing entail? Like, in my mind, for example, is that, say, we would go to one of our closer ally countries like Norway and say, hey guys, could you make a case for us? And they would go, oh yes, sure, no problem. And then, yeah, Pretty much, yes. You'd have to find a state who was willing to intervene on our behalf against the UK. It's interesting as a thought experiment. That one actually grabs me as if it's something you can do, and if you say there is precedent for it, I mean, it sounds like somewhat effective and also has a cooperative element to it. And there are a lot of countries which have said that they would support us, like Iceland and things, who are constantly saying that they really like us. I just think diplomatically, they're going to have to weigh up. Do they want to potentially damage their relationship with the rest of the UK to support us? Professor McCorkadale says this is unlikely but not impossible. Yeah, it's just obviously there's the scary element of the unilateral secession in which you basically just say, well, going now, and well, they may then have grounds to go, well, then bring you back, but with guns. Well, there is that, but there's also, I mean, Kosovo went down the, right, that's it, we're off now, and they had a referendum with a 99% yes vote. Secession isn't illegal in itself. It doesn't mean you've got a legal right to do it, but it's not illegal to do it. Thing is, though, that Kosovo has been accepted as a state by about 55% of countries. So it's by no means is it fully accepted as a state. Scotland might be different in that we were a, a nation, a country for a thousand years before the Treaty of Union, but that is the risk. So we like the idea of state-sponsored argument for independence, but we're not sure how the diplomacy of that would work. And we agree that secession is a perfectly legal and natural thing, but also that that could be dicey as well. Yeah. And the other thing that Neil Hanvey has, he's jumped a step because he's going for an opinion on how do we get independence. What we still don't have is that incontrovertible demonstration that that is what the majority of people in Scotland want. It still needs some democratic event that allows us to vote. Let's go on to the next clip. This is Gordon McIntyre Kemp. And this is from a presentation that he did for the group Yes for EU's AGM. And you can see that on their YouTube channel. Panel based did the survey for us. Uh, should Scotland be an independent country? 
same people, we asked them, if the Scottish government were, if there was a referendum tomorrow and the Scottish government had put as the main economic case a well-being approach that gave equal precedence and decision-making to well-being, health, happiness, sustainability, as it does to GDP, how would you vote? And it jumps to 56%. These are the same people reading one sentence. And we've done this in uh, discussion groups. The key thing that people say to us is, but that's not what the SNP are telling us independence is all about. Why aren't they saying that? Well, they are. They've just changed the economy minister to the well-being economy minister, and they're saying exactly this, right? And they're talking to us almost every day. That's an important change, a massively important change. So you get an 8% uplift in support for independence just by saying, and we're going to have a well-being economy, because they don't believe you can have it. Labour are saying it. We're not finding anyone believing Labour are going to do it. Yes, absolutely. If you can explain it, and if you can disseminate the information, then that's a lot more beneficial. And there's something in what you've said, which is that since all we really have are unofficial informal channels for getting these messages out, short of having a stall on every street corner that's firing leaflets left and right. I believe in Scotland recalling various days of action throughout the summer and encouraging local stalls. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Last week, Marlene and I were invited to Leslie Riddick's book launch in Perth. We'll be covering that in a podcast to come out in due course. This is a theme she returns to again and again, which is what is local democracy in Scotland and how does that factor in for our chances of success? Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book, you might, might have heard of it, called Outliers. And in it, he suggests that people who are very successful are successful because they've done a lot of practice like 10,000 hours, that's his goal. And he takes the Beatles, they did 10,000 hours in a club in Hamburg before they ever hit the big time in Britain. They'd actually spent that time learning their trade, getting on with one another, playing the songs, getting into the right, getting the mistakes out of the way, doing all that stuff, 10,000 hours, they were home. Bill Gates is another of his examples. He started coding when he was nine at a tremendously precocious school that he went to. So he actually was completely at one with this whole way of doing stuff by the time he hit school. So his case is 10,000 hours is what you have to spend doing something to get really confident about it, really relaxed and really certain. What have Scott spent 10,000 hours doing? With all due respect, watching. I remember when I was young, jobs went to people from south of the border because nobody here was deemed fit to be promoted. But since then, We have watched because we have not got vibrant local democracy. We don't own land. We don't have the ownership of things that all the countries that I showed you earlier have got. All of them were already independent locally and they just scaled their thinking up. They ran themselves and they just decided that if they could do that, they could run their country. And I think that's a major problem for us. We are watching far too much. Now, when it comes to democratic practice, we are nowhere. If you take Scotland, we've got 32 massive councils that you cannot call local. We have out of that 1.2 thousand councillors. We have, when it comes to trade unions, 540,000 members, and we have 432 people own half the private land of Scotland. You kind of know that. So Norway, same population, 
has 12,000 councillors, 2 million union members and 15,000 plus landowners. My point is that these guys are doing stuff. They are doing democracy. They have currently 356 local councils edging its way back up again after a Conservative government there tried to get many of them to merge, which is one of the reasons the Conservatives were kicked out. They hated it. So they're on their way back to 422, which is where they were before. We have 32. And that's been their long experience. So, you know, the more you spend time with your hands off the tiller, the more you spend time watching, the more you become nervous. You don't know how to assess the capacity of the people beside you. They might be useless. How do you know? You're used to being told. You're used to command from somewhere else. You're used to leaders who can't be challenged. You're not used to a democracy that is you. And that's where this really corrosive fear comes in that what have we got going for us? Just that we're friendly people? We need to know more than that about ourselves. We need to know how incredibly capable Scots are because right across Scotland, despite the worst structures about local democracy in the developed world, and I kid you not, it's that bad. The average population of a so-called local council in Scotland is 175,000 people. The average across the EU is 10,000 people. We are way off on our own on this one. But what's come to the rescue are Scots, communities, who've decided that, okay, they are not accountants, they don't have the expertise in land management, bridge management, island management, any kind of management, but it's their community and they're going to take it on. Those figures are quite stark, aren't they? We've got a local council for the town we live in, which is just a dozen volunteers. They tend to be somebody who's either press-scanned into it or who, who feels strong enough about an issue that they choose to get involved. I don't think we take seriously the fact that it's our responsibility to step up and take a role in managing the locality in which we live. It tends to be retired folk because they've got the time. It tends to be men because they put themselves forward more than women. But that's because the rest of us haven't stepped up or the council hasn't done anything to say, no, this is what we're looking for. We want to mirror the population. I think it's kind of just been surreptitiously <laughs> creeping in for a while now, but it is this feeling of disempowerment, seeing a problem and thinking, who above me will somehow fix this in some way, as opposed to how will I get together with my neighbours and fix this in some way? Yes. And that that's a really good example. And in a way, it's that kind of it's somebody else's fault that somebody else needs to come and fix it as opposed to this is an issue we've got. What are we going to do? Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, the local response should be the first response, not the last one. You know, mm. it shouldn't be, well, we've tried every other option. Oh, I guess we'll have a go at it ourselves. It should be immediately first thing. All right, let's have a go at fixing this. And then, yeah, if you find you hit a roadblock that can only be solved, maybe it's like a legal thing or, yeah, something very official, then, yeah, you'll have to go somewhere higher. But you at least tried it first yeah. yourself. The development trusts have gone some way to do that because, I mean, we know here we took over what was the civic centre. They've also taken over the football pitch. They're also looking at how do we replace the public toilet. And we absolutely were making it up as we went along but with a lot of help from our, our regional council, I have to say. If they build up some confidence and some knowledge about how do we run our civic centre, which was a huge learning curve, maybe the next step would be, okay, how do we get a district eating system? 
Yeah, and you were on to a very good thing with that. Initially, though, I don't think it's as much been carried on recently in that all throughout a lot of those big decisions, one of the first and most important steps was let's call everyone who wants to come together to the community center, some sort of yeah, big central right. place. Let's get some opinions flying. Let's see where everyone stands on this. And that's a really important part. You have to have that. And I mean, at least for us recently, I don't think there's been as much of that. It's this idea of we have an issue of the day. You know what? Let's just get whoever wants to come discuss it, come together and discuss yeah. it. The thing that we found, well, certainly the early days of the trust, you brought them in on something they were interested in, but then <laughs> you kind of managed to then move on to something else once you had their interests. Yeah, yeah it was quite a good way of, of getting people involved. Right, so we just heard from Gordon McIntyre Kemp and Leslie Riddick, and both of those were guests at the SNP's convention, which was held in Dundee. That convention was the first one with Humza Yousaf in charge. It was live streamed. I have watched it. I found bits of it quite inspirational. Two clips we're going to play from it. First of all is some of Humza Yousaf's speech, and this kind of follows on from what we played earlier about the constitution. But this is more about this question of are we going to have a de facto referendum using a general election? So this is him setting out what he thinks should happen. And it actually goes a bit further than that question, which is quite interesting. The SNP believes that democracy is something to be cherished, not something to be feared. Westminster are clearly Westminster election. That election offers us the opportunity to break the long journey. Of course, we will set out how we will stand up for Scotland's interests and how we'll mitigate the damage of Westminster control, as we always do. But friends, I didn't get into politics to simply mitigate Westminster damage. I believe that the SNP should do much more than that. I believe that in this election, the SNP should offer the people of Scotland a manifesto for an independent Scotland. A manifesto bursting with ideas about how Scotland can harness our potential through the powers of independence. And friends, in that manifesto, page one, line one, I am proposing that we put a simple but powerful statement to the people. Vote SNP for Scotland to become an independent country. Friends, we know how hard it is to win elections. The polls are tight. There's everything to place. The Westminster establishment will rail against us. But we know that independence is based Scotland's future. So we must give the people of Scotland the ability to choose that future. Let me be clear, if the SNP does win this election, then the people will have spoken. We will seek negotiations with the UK government on how we give democratic effect to Scotland becoming an independent nation. Remember, we are not the block on a referendum. A referendum has been our plan A. Westminster are the ones who are blocking it. So whether that democratic effect is a referendum or simply the general election, that is for them to answer. They told Scotland, this is a voluntary union. Prove it. Friends, we're not going to wait for Westminster. If we win the general election, we will take that mandate from the people and ensure that we 
as a government are ready to negotiate our independence. We will take the following actions. Firstly, we will set out a detailed document documenting the terms we would seek in discussion with the UK government for Scotland becoming an independent country. It will be called Withdrawal from Westminster, a new partnership agreement. This new partnership agreement between Scotland and our friends in the rest of the UK would include draft legal text on the transfer of powers from Westminster to the Scottish Parliament necessary to prepare for independence. It would set out the Scottish Government's position on issues such as the division of assets, that would detail future arrangements for continuing, indeed, bettering the cooperation with the rest of the UK. In place of the assertive Westminster knows best, know your place doctrine, we can have a new, a better relationship, one based on equal partnership and based on mutual respect. Secondly, we will conduct a nationwide open and inclusive consultation on a draft interim constitution, the founding document of our newly independent state. And the process will include some fundamental principles and aims to protect citizens' rights that are being eroded by Westminster, like the right of workers to strike, to give constitutional protection for our NHS free the point of use, to confer our duty on the government of an independent Scotland to pursue nuclear disarmament. And friends, the first line of that interim constitution will say the following. Scotland is an independent country in which the people are sovereign. Friends, with independence, we will transfer sovereignty from Westminster to the people of Scotland. And thirdly, if we win the general election, we will prepare the ground for Scotland becoming an independent member state of the European Union. We'll do that by establishing an envoy position, a representative of the Scottish Government in Brussels. This position will be focused on explaining the Scottish Government's policy on independence to our fellow Europeans. We will reinforce to our European partners our commitment to a legal, constitutional, democratic process. We will also seek to enhance understanding that Scotland is an ancient nation committed to the founding values of the European Union. A country, of course, with much to gain from EU membership, but also much to offer as we navigate the challenges of the 21st century. So friends, with these three actions, we are going to take our destiny into our own hands. We will begin laying the foundations of a newly independent nation. It's a vote to deliver the powers of a country which can build a better economy, stronger public services, a fairer, greener society, and a Scotland free from the abomination of weapons of mass destruction. I have actually taken the applause off that recording because it just went on for a long time. My first reaction on hearing that was, oh, wow, this is great. This is different. I think the devil is going to be in the detail, though. What do they mean by win, for example? Some people talking about seats, some people talking about votes. What happens if they win? Is it a negotiation for independence or is it a negotiation for a referendum? What is it? So there's details to be sorted out. But having said that, it did seem to be a lot more positive. And that sentiment was echoed by Tommy Shepherd when he took to the stage. 
Uh, we have had the investigation into our headquarters. We have seen our poll numbers drop. We have lost elections and we have lost members. And we have also lost a sense of faith and confidence amongst ourselves. So I was wondering what would happen at this meeting today. And I have to say, like Pete Wishart, I too am enthused at what I see before me. I say to our political opponents, who have enjoyed so much schadenfreude at our, display, at our misfortunes over the last few months, enjoy it while you can, because it ends now. This is the point at which we turn. This is where we renew, we rebuild, and we are coming for you like never before. That Scotland should be an independent country is now the sustained view of half of the people who live here. So as others have said, even if we didn't want to, there is no way we can do other than put independence front and centre of our election campaign because we are the political representation of that national aspiration. In doing so, I am mindful of Stephen's introduction when he talked about the real agony and despair that is amongst our people at this time. And others will try, and they've said it already in the run-up to this weekend, that we are engaged in distraction talking about arid constitutional issues, and that we do not understand the real issues facing people. It is a lie. It has always been a lie. Because the truth is that independence and self-government give you the power to be able to do something about that cost of living crisis. We should absolutely relate our campaign, our campaign to those bread and butter issues. In fact, I would also suggest that whilst demanding our independence, we should demand within days of a new government emergency powers to the Scottish Parliament to allow us to intervene in the Scottish economy, to allow us to provide supplementary pensions, supplementary benefits, raise the minimum wage, allow a Scottish visa. These are things that can be done in days while we're waiting. The other thing, comrades, colleagues, is that we must also, and John Swinney was absolutely right, we must seek a mandate to ensure that when we consider how we are governed and what our constitutional future is, that is a decision that is made in this country by the people who live here and not in another country by the people who live there. So we need we need to bring back and make sure that the whole process of consulting people in Scotland and their constitutional future is a matter for the elected Scottish Government. And if they have a majority to do so, they can have a referendum every damn day of the week if they please. Finally, just a note of caution, colleagues, because I'm raring to go in this campaign. But I say to you, the victory of ideas needs to be organised. If this is the campaign we're in, then I say to our NEC, to our headquarters, let us make sure we have a turning point and a reset. Let us make sure we have a suite of materials that we need to campaign. We have paid full-time organisers to boost that campaign, and we have the leadership from the national level that we need to win. So that was two speeches from the convention. First of all, Hamza, I'm not entirely sure exactly what he was proposing there. There was some bits that sounded really good and there were some bits that sounded like another mandate 
which I think is a complete non-starter. But I do like the idea of an envoy to the EU. I do like the idea of setting out the relationship that we would be looking for because that's going to have to be done anyway. You know, we're going to have to have a transition period while we disentangle ourselves from Westminster. But the grey area then is, well, what if you get a majority of the seats on 38% of the vote? Does that give you the right to go in, start negotiations? But this is an SNP convention, and the challenge was made to them by Leslie Riddick, by Gordon McIntyre Kemp. You need to start talking to people who are outside the SNP in the Yes Movement. There's been a suggestion that if all the independence parties have something in their manifesto that says a vote for us is also a vote for an independent Scotland, then if they've all got that same first line, you can then add in any votes for all those other parties as part of your case. And then Tommy Shepard's response was interesting because he seemed to be completely fired up about it and his passionate outburst about how much further we could go. That's the kind of thing that can get people excited and fired up. Still believe it's hard to get people fired up about cold hard paperwork, (laughs) but it is important to have it and to tell people that you are going to be prepared with it. That's good. The other guy, way more fired up. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. At a Scottish Affairs Committee, Alistair Jack had previously complained that Scottish ministers were discussing things with people outside Britain. And then when it was pointed out to him that, well, actually, you know, developing Scottish trade is part of their remit as the Scottish government, he came back with his list of examples. And what we're going to play is him setting out those examples to the Scottish Affairs Committee Pete Wishart's immediate reaction, and then Humza Yousaf's reaction, because he got a copy of the list of transgressions. Nicola Sturgeon was clear that she discussed the Constitution with the US Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman during a visit to Washington, D.C. in 2022. During a meeting with the French EU minister, Mr. Robertson discussed the EU Erasmus scheme and the UK Turing scheme, and he commented that there was no, I quote again, no alternative other than Scotland to be part of the EU again. Poland, Ivan McKee, Mr. McKee, said at a trade event in Poland that was attended by a European Secretary of State in a Ministry of Economic Development and Technology that Brexit was a mistake. He looked forward to Scotland joining the EU as a full member in due course. Mr Robertson described Brexit as a calamity, said it opposed additional challenges for Scotland, not least because Scotland was pro-EU. At his St Andrew's Day reception in the European capital, Mr Robertson, in a European capital, should I say, Mr Robertson said that Scotland would rejoin the EU as an independent nation and criticised the impact of the EU exit on student exchange programmes to Scotland. You described them as blatant breach. You sounded pretty much like mega fair. You know, a tweet from Nicola Sturgeon, Ivan McKee saying Brexit is a mistake. Sir, most people in Scotland think Brexit is a mistake. Last week, I got a list of our supposed transgressions from the UK government. I have to tell you, friends, no, I have to be serious, that's really serious point. I have to be fra- I have to tell you, my friends, I was shocked when I found out what SNP ministers had been up to. Ivan McKee was in Poland on a trade mission. He was apparently overheard saying that Brexit was a mistake. Perish the thought, my friends. Angus Robertson. Angus Robertson was promoting Scottish culture at a St Andrew's Day reception. And he dared to say that leaving the EU 
had negatively impacted on student exchange programmes to Scotland. An absolute shocker, ladies and gentlemen. You see, for the Tories, bringing jobs and investment to Scotland is apparently a transgression. For the SNP, bringing jobs and investment into Scotland is our national mission. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's just that he's going through item trying to say, oh, and look at this one. But everything he's saying, you're just going, yeah, that's very true. You're right. Uh, it was a very bad deal and Brexit is terrible. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and that's, these are our elected representatives. That's exactly what we would elect them to say. The idea that they're forbidden from criticising Brexit it smacks of old Soviet Union kind of thought control. Yeah, it's toe the party line of a party that you aren't. It's, yeah. it's very, very strange. And the fact he had to go back to 2022 to get an example for, for this list, is it's just ridiculous. But he is engaging in quite a campaign of disruptiveness. So I don't know if it's just power games or what. The next clip we're going to play, this comes from one of Craig Diehl's podcast episodes, and he's got Professor of Public Law Aileen McHarg. They talked about Alistair Jack and his general approach. Is Jack deliberately increasing tensions at the boundaries of devolution? I mean, he does seem to be acting in a, in a very provocative way in a number of respects. And the Section 35 order was one, that was the first time that, that um, there had been, that veto power had ever been used and it previously had been regarded as you know, really a nuclear option. He's obviously been very provocative and critical in relation to deposit return scheme, claiming that the Scottish government hasn't asked for an exemption in the proper way and that there's a high bar to an exemption and he hasn't seen the, this, that and the next thing. So he, he is kind of wading into what you might have regarded as internal political disputes within the devolved sphere. And I think sometimes he's doing that to the dismay of ministers and officials in other in, in other departments. But why is he doing that? Well, I mean, I think there's kind of two linked reasons, perhaps. So one is there is clearly a strand of opinion in the Conservative Party that thinks devolution has gone too far, it needs to be reined in. Alistair Jack appears to be in that at school of muscular unionism. Secondly, quite clearly trying to take the demand for a second referendum off the table by getting the SNP out of office. But Alistair Jack is doing this particularly enthusiastically. I mean, it is quite interesting the way he's got involved in the deposit return scheme issue because I don't really think it is his decision whether or not to grant an exemption. If you look at the, the common frameworks that sort of intergovernmental agreements in this area, it really should be a matter for the relevant functional ministers, both within the devolved governments and the UK government, to decide whether or not there should be an exemption from the UK Internal Market Act. So he seems to be kind of acting a little bit as a loose cannon. I don't know whether whether that's condoned by the rest of the UK government or not. I don't know. But it, he's constantly complaining that the Scottish government are not following the correct procedures, but he seems to be kind of making up a rule for himself that also doesn't follow the correct procedures. The audio on that is is not great, but I, I do think it's interesting. There's a, a professor of public law pointing out that Alistair Jack is making up procedures as he goes along. 
and then accusing the Scottish government of not following procedures that he's just made up. I mean, either he's just so thick that he doesn't understand what the rules are. The mental image it conjures up for me is it's of a man walking through his rival's factory and he's surrounded by various machines doing various things and he is just at leisure to go, throw a wrench in that one, see what happens. Ah, maybe I'll pull the fire alarm. You know what? I think I'm going to contact headquarters and accuse the CEO of embezzlement. <laughs> and it is. It's this like destructive kid in a candy shell thing. He is just there, sort of, but his only job, as far as he's concerned, is I wonder how I can cause issues today. Uh, it could just be he doesn't care because he's been promised a seat in the House of Lords. So he's been sent in to do the damage, which, you know, in a way, is worse because it's him sabotaging his own country for a seat in the House of Lords in the country next door. So there's mention there of the deposit return scheme. Westminster are trying to get glass removed from the scheme, so they've forbidden us to have glass in it. But it's quite interesting what the Welsh take on it is. We will um, take the English government to task because it is the English government for this purpose. Um, a reading of uh, the UK Internal Market Act would tell you that no one nation can interrupt the commerce of all the others. Well, it's England that's the outlier here, not Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland. And I think they need to understand that. Um, so we will continue to pursue the intergovernment um, mechanisms that point that out to them. Um, but we will also continue to prepare for our own deposit return scheme. We don't think we need the permission of the UK government to do that. And can I just say, the non-inclusion of glass makes no sense. So we don't really understand why England has come away from this. They consulted on glass alongside us. The consultation responses are the same for them as they are for us. So this is an extraordinary and I think not very evidence-based shift by the English government. So we're not happy about that and we will just continue with our plans as, as they were before. Now, there was a tweet that I saw which made a suggestion that a £20,000 donation from somebody in the drinks industry to people at Westminster might have caused this change of heart. But if so, that doesn't seem very much, actually, for the disruption they're causing. So you wonder if it's just another issue that they don't particularly care about, but they've thought, I know we can use this to get one over the Scottish government without even stopping to think, oh, and it's also going to impact on the Welsh and the Irish. They do see opposing the DRS as being essentially a valuable chess piece on the board for them, even if only as something that they can point to and say, ah, well, you see, this isn't working and it's your fault. And in the hope that public opinion will then gently start to shift that way, especially if all they see in the media is that particular point of view, then they will start to think, Oh, God, Scottish government really is holding up that DRS. And what's really um, annoying as well is that this is a scheme that's got huge public backing. You know, the GRA, as we know, has a lot of different views on that. But the deposit return scheme, most people can remember when they were young, you took lemonade bottles back and you got a five pence or however much it was. You know, these are not difficult concepts. And people also agree with the idea of having less litter and of recycling, consuming less of the, the world's resources. A lot of positives about it. And the fact that they'd got as far through a lot of hard work by Lorna Slater, the minister, to get the drinks industry to accept that the polluter pays, that's the big shift, is that it's not for the taxpayer to pick up the mess. You're making a profit out of selling this product. You must also be responsible for the environmental impacts of that product. Big drinks manufacturers are already doing this because they're supplying drinks all over the world to countries that have got a whole range of different deposit return schemes. 
and yet it's only a problem when they're doing it in Scotland, apparently. It's just it's just twisting the narrative. It is amazing that something which should only have positive benefits, <laughs> they are so vehemently against it and so strangely demanding that it not include a core material. You know, that, that's, that's included in almost everybody else. But there is more factors at work here, isn't there? So on the surface, it's a ridiculous argument about a fairly mundane process. But there's also trying to spin the narrative of the Scottish government incompetence. But there's also, now I don't know whether it's political or just good old-fashioned misogyny, but there was then an attack on Lorna Slater, and she has been getting absolute abuse from all sides and being accused of things. It's the Westminster government that's creating a lot of the issues. But it culminated in the Tories lodging a motion of no confidence in it. Now, the Tories have never liked the fact that the Greens are in government. They don't like the Butte House Agreement. Labour don't seem to be too enamoured of it either. So there was a debate which was really very uncomfortable to listen to. With Lorna Slater sitting there, all the opposition lining up to give her a kicking and say why they had no confidence in her, apart from Fergus Ewing, who is just a permanently angry man right now, from all I can see. Apart from him, the Greens and the SNP obviously backed her. So the no confidence motion fell. But it was just like watching somebody being bullied in the playground. And, you know, the boys, it was generally the men lining up to taunt the woman. It really was unpleasant to watch. But the clip we're going to play is Mark Ruskell, one of the Green MSPs, gave quite a a passionate speech in Lorna's defence, and here's the beginning of it. So, well, this motion of no confidence is the most shameless, cynical and desperate stunt by the Tories that I've seen yet in this chamber. And on the very day... On the very day that their leadership fell apart at Westminster, amongst the lies of Boris Johnson, they lodged this motion in a pathetic attempt to distract everyone from the dying days of their government. And the audacity of this motion, the absolute brass neck of it, beggars belief. Because it was the Tories who scuppered the DRS scheme. They forced the removal of glass which the scheme was built around. And they set the conditions on its operation that are impossible to plan for. And now they're trying to gaslight Scotland into believing it was somehow Lorna Slater's fault all along. It is absurd, presiding officer. Now we can expect this kind of rank opportunism from the Tories. But what about Labour? I urge every Labour and Liberal Democrat MSP in this chamber to think long and hard about what they're voting for and who they're lining up with to do it. For this is not just an attack on Lorna Slater. It's an attack on everyone who believes in devolution. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. The Privileges Committee's report on Boris Johnson found him to be an absolute liar. My favourite of the various speeches came from Martin Doherty Hughes. This is personal. It's personal for every constituent that I represent, and I'm sure it's personal for every other constituent that members in this House represent. But I'm afraid the House has to take a lesson, because while I commend the report and all the members of the committee, and I commend the chair uh, and all the clerks who helped in it, 
It doesn't answer some fundamental questions that the House will need to consider in the long term. How is it possible that Boris Johnson walks out the door and earns millions within days, and all we can say to him, and I will quote from the report, in the view of the fact that Mr Johnson is no longer a member, we recommend that he should not be granted a former member's pass. How ridiculous we look, but yet the committee itself is hamstrung by the very regulations of this place. This report is not a panacea for democratic practice and the Houses of Commons for the British state. This is not an answer, but it does give evidence to the former member of Uxbridge who lied through their teeth, who parted on while our constituents were dying, and while working class communities the length and breadth of these islands, as I think the Honourable Member for Weavervale was talking about earlier, people driving ambulances, paramedics, orderlies in hospitals who couldn't get PPE, even though we see them being dumped in fields in the shires of England in the last couple of days. How ridiculous that communities like mine had to suffer the indignity of that buffoon sitting in Downing Street while our families were dying. How ridiculous. The, the report, while well, it gives evidence, it takes the evidence. And do those members who were opposite who said they saw no evidence? Well, guess what? Here's the evidence. It's in the report. They might as well read it for a change. Now, there was also the COVID inquiry is ongoing, Mr Speaker. Uh, and let me uh, quote the other. Like yeah, I will give way to my honourable friend for Glasgow. I'm very grateful to my honourable friend for giving away. And doesn't it make a bit of a mockery that one of the things that the report can recommend is that Boris Johnson does not have a former member's pass, but he still has the privilege of sitting as a member of the Privy Council and representing this country at the Senate? Shouldn't we be looking at trying to strip him of these things as well? Yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll come on to honours in a minute because I do believe, Mr. Speaker, I may have a wee bit of time. <laughs> um, let's uh, quote uh, the fo- other former, de- uh, fi- former Prime Minister, David Cameron, who at the COVID inquiry today said, From my experience chairing Cobras, the system works, but the system works better when the Prime Minister is in the chair. The party opposite removed the right honourable member for Maidenhead, who I have every confidence, while we may disagree, I have every confidence that the right honourable member from Maidenhead would have been at every Cobra meeting during COVID-19, unlike the person they replaced her with. That's the ridiculous proposition that David Cameron came up to today. He agrees that that idiot, if that's not parliamentary, I'll retract it, but I think it is, that idiot missed five COVID-19 Cobra meetings. People were dying. It's the greatest tragedy since the Blitz, and he couldn't be bothered to turn up. My constituents turned up. They had to go to work. They drove ambulances. They were in working in porters and hospitals. And what do they get told? And I'll quote it again, that he gets his pass taken off him. Now, that actually sounds quite pathetic. But that's the limitations that we have yep. been given to us in this report. Yeah, it's the yeah. limitations yeah. placed on the Privileges Committee <coughs> itself. Now, back in uh, the 9th of December 2021, I then asked the Paymaster General, because we'd heard about parties in 2020, Mr Speaker. You might remember that, Christmas parties. 
Now, I asked the then Paymaster General in relation to those Christmas parties that if something looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it's at a Christmas party, it's usually a duck. It seems the duck was also a liar. And that liar said that those parties never took place. Now, on the issue that my honourable friend for Glasgow East talks about in relation to the rights and privileges of the former member for Uxbridge now that they've left. Don't give him a damn thing. Yeah. Don't allow a single honour to go through that yep. he has yeah, sought yeah, the yeah, monarch's yeah. approval for. Yeah, now, yeah. I'm no monarchist, but I do believe that the monarch has the ability, the head of state has the ability, or the advisers to the monarchy have the ability to say that an honour, the person is not befitting the honour. Yeah. That whole goddamn list is not befitting any honour, Mr. Speaker. It is just corruption, really is. And one of the people that he's nominated to sit in the House of Lords in his honours list is Alistair Jack. So it would be brilliant if they could get that list pulled. I would love that. And the final clip, because we've been hearing all about the, the awfulness of Westminster, this came from one of Independence Live's uh, weekly shows. It's called I Matters for Westminster, and it's Martin Day and John McNally, who are two MPs. A couple of weeks ago, they had guests on. One is a guy from Alabama. It was fascinating, and it was about the American presidential candidate elections. This was in the course of a live stream, so they're actually asked, answering a question that one of the viewers has raised. How many candidates have announced they're running for the Republicans, Trump, Pence, DeSantos, and any other? Clearly paying very close attention, because you've actually anticipated Mike Pence's announcement by about 24 hours. Um, Mike Pence is expected to declare tomorrow, I believe, either tomorrow or Wednesday. There are seven Republican candidates in the race right now. Trump, DeSantis, uh, Tim Scott, who's the senator from South Carolina, Nikki Haley, who's the former governor of South Carolina, Asa Hutchinson, who's the former governor of Arkansas, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's an Indian-American uh, tech entrepreneur with about $700 million, who's likely to make some kind of small impact, and Larry Elder, uh, who's a radio host from California, who is not. The other people who are going to declare later this week include uh, the governor of North Dakota, who no one's ever heard of, but who seems relatively sane and therefore will probably not win the nomination. And um, Chris Christie, who is neither sane nor likely to win the nomination. Um, basically, I think uh, the, the overwhelming favorite uh, has to be Trump. DeSantis is the only other one who appears to have a serious chance, and that's only because most people have never actually sat down and watched an interview of him or met him. I heard someone describe him recently as um, uh, he's relatable, or at least he has Googled relatability. He's asked ChatGPT how to have a conversation. And yeah, he's, oh no, there was a beautiful recording <laughs> of an interaction with him in Iowa recently at a meet and greet with voters. And he says, hi, what's your name? And the guy says, I'm, I'm Ken Branson. He says, okay. And that's the end of it. And just silence. That's the end of the interaction. Yeah. So uh, if, if you're interested no, on which whoa. ones. He's not one for having difficult conversations. He's not one for having difficult conversations. If you're interested in who else to watch, maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, the, some, of the, some of the commentators are excited about Tim Scott. I personally don't think he's got a chance because they're excited about him because he's a little bit more reasonable. And so he's not going to make it. Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy could be interesting. I can't imagine him winning the nomination. Um, I mean, he's a he's a first generation American practicing Hindu in a party that's increasingly Christian nationalist. Um, he's also just he he seems more likely to be the sort of Andrew Yang of this election than the other. 
uh, than anything else, but he's worth watching. Uh, it gets to the point about Democratic backsliding, though, because the way the Republicans elect, uh, choose their presidential candidate is effectively by a first-past-the-post competition among the 50 states. So the, each state in the U.S. holds a primary. In the Democratic Party, the percentage of vote that you get in that state's primary awards you a certain number of delegates to the party's national convention that chooses the president. Um, in the Republican primary, whoever gets the highest percentage of votes in, I think, nine out of ten of their primaries gets all of the delegates for that state. So if Donald Trump is in, in a ten-candidate field, if Donald Trump is bringing in even 40% of the vote, uh, he's almost certainly going to win, and he's currently polling at well over 60%. And if you don't believe me that he can win with 40%, in 2016, Donald Trump only got 35% of the votes in the Republican primary, um, and yet he swept the board because it's an undemocratic first-past-the-post system. The guy speaking there was Bert McLennan, who is one of the staffers for the SNP in London. And I think we should give him his own show. I thought he was very entertaining and very good at explaining what is a system that just completely baffles me. I think this was perhaps recorded the week before Trump was indicted, because that happened the same week that Johnson's report came out. In fact, it might even have been on the same day. So I don't know if that will make a difference or not. Yeah, what I understood of the situation was it was kind of an interesting question of if a Republican was to be elected, probably better that it be the insane devil that you know in Trump than the thing that we've all actually constantly feared, which is the competent fascist who says things and you go, oh, he makes it in a compelling argument. Whereas if you just have Orange Clown Man up, everyone can go, ah, Orange Clown Man, bad. <laughs> oh, well, so that I thought that was a nice thing to end with because it, it's not just us. So that's it for the month of June. And thank you very much, James, for being part of the conversation. As always, makes it more interesting, I think, than just listening to me. No episode of Bits and Pieces next month because having a holiday. But we will have a podcast every Friday as usual. So you won't miss out on the podcast. It just won't be bits and pieces. But both houses will be in recess anyway. Like you have said last summer, nothing interesting is going to happen over the summer. And then we had Johnson was turfed out. We had Liz Truss and the Queen died. So um, what do I know? So what we're saying is you can expect a busy summer. And we'll be back with uh, a summary of the summer. Thanks for listening, so, folks. Bye now. You've been listening to Bits and Pieces. I'm a